what do you guys think about going 10 steps further here and letting a law firm in as a partner? It's, it's no, interesting. No, can you trust a lawyer, though? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. It's episode 323 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's episode, with the 61st Bourbon Community Roundtable, here's your weekly bourbon news update. It is with great sadness that we pass along the news that Steve Thompson, the founder of Kentucky Artisan Distillery, which is the home of Jefferson's Bourbon and a few others, passed away on September 6th of 2021 at the age of 79 years old. Distilling was Steve's life and passion. He was the president at Brown Foreman from 1987 to 1995, and created Hawaii Island Spirits back in 2007. In 2012, he realized his dream in opening his own distillery, Kentucky Artisan Distillery in Crestwood, Kentucky. The global whiskey market is set to reach $108 billion by 2031. Yep, you heard that right, $108 billion. This study comes from market research firm FactMR, and they said the global whiskey market will increase at a compounded annual growth rate of 6%, from 2021 to 2031, meaning whiskey revenues, which reached 60 billion this year, will hit 108 billion in 10 years' time. Factamar said it expects the U.S. to account for 30% of whiskey revenues over the next decade, and that American drinkers have taken a particular interest in the super premium segment, which is confirmed by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States that said the sales of super premium products accounted for 40% of spirits revenue growth in the U.S. in 2020 alone. The Kentucky Distillers Association has announced that White Dog Trading and Storage in Woodford County is the newest and 45th member of the nonprofit trade group that unites and leads Kentucky's signature bourbon and distilled spirits industry. And we talk about this more on the roundtable, so we'll save that for a little bit later. Westward Whiskey is announcing their launch of their first truly national direct-to-consumer brand-owned whiskey club called the Westward Whiskey Club. This was originally launched in 2019, but only available to Oregon residents, but is now available to 30 states across the U.S. And this club gets you access to club-only whiskey releases and club-only events that are led by Westward's team of experts. Members can choose from two different tiers, the Explorer Club and the Cask Club. Each have different price points, and you can enjoy up to three bottles per quarter as well. Jimmy Russell has celebrated his 67th anniversary at Wild Turkey. That's a long time to be master distilling, so even if that's a word. Congratulations, Jimmy. Now moving on to some bourbon release news. Brown Foreman has announced the 2021 release of King of Kentucky, and this is the fourth ever release. Here's a bit of brand history. King of Kentucky was established in 1881 as a Kentucky straight bourbon, and Brown Foreman acquired the brand in 1936 from selected Kentucky distillers. By 1940, it was converted into a blended whiskey, and then discontinued in 1968, but was then revived in 2018. These will be released as several single barrels, and 2021 has 33 different barrels that will be available. All of them will be 14 years old. There will be a total of 2,700 bottles, and a majority of that volume will be in Kentucky, but will be limited also to a few quantities in Illinois and Ohio. It will have a retail price of $250. Watershed Distillery is launching its highly anticipated barrel strength bourbon batch two, and this one is finished in apple brandy casks. 
created from some of the last remaining barrels of Watershed Distillery's original five-grain mash bill of corn, wheat, rye, barley, and spelt. This bourbon was aged for four years in virgin char number four white oak barrels and then finished for 35 to 45 months in Watershed's own Ohio apple brandy casks. Around 3,060 bottles will be available starting September 18th across Ohio, Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Lexington, New York City, and Tampa for a retail price of $90. Luxco's Remus Repeal Reserve Series 5 Straight Bourbon Whiskey from MGP is now available at retailers. This is a limited edition release, and Series 5 is, of course, the fifth edition of this award-winning Remus Repeal Reserve Bourbon Collection. It showcases a medley of five bourbons ranging from 2005 to 2008 from distillation times. Made in the distillery's signature high-rise style, this medley changes every year, allowing the team to experiment with their various mash bills. And Remus Repeal Reserve 5 is comprised of 9% of 2005 bourbon from the 21% rye mash bill, 5% of 2006 from the 36%, 19% from the 2006 of the 21%. Stick with me, we're still going here. 13% of the 2008 bourbon of the 21%, and 54% of 2008 bourbon of the 36% rye mash bill. Remus Repeal Reserve Series 5 is bottled at 100 proof and will retail for $90. Ducks Unlimited and Luxro Distillers are announcing the launch of Davies County Double Barrel Bourbon. This isn't the first time that Ducks Unlimited has partnered on a bourbon. They were a part of the Beam Decanters back in the 1970s, and thanks Fred Minnick for that little nugget of information he posted on his Facebook feed. The Luxco version will feature Ducks Unlimited brand packaging and a name that is certain to appeal to outdoor enthusiasts and bourbon drinkers alike. Finished in Missouri white oak barrels with toasted heads, Davies County Double Barrel was created by Luxro Master Distiller and longtime Ducks Unlimited member John Rempe. Double Barrel features a mash bill that is similar to other Davies County bourbon variants, along with the same 96 proof level. These will be available for purchase in mid-September, and will also have a limited supply with a suggested retail price of $50 per bottle. Now for today's roundtable, we've got a lot of great topics. I already mentioned it in the top of the news there that White Dog has joined the KDA, and we talk about what does it mean when brokers join the KDA. We also talk about the power of union strikes, and we wrap it up to figure out Who's doing the best at bourbon marketing? But we talked about it so much that we decided we need to come back to it on the next roundtable because there's a lot more to talk about when it comes to bourbon marketing. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Matthew Welge, who writes me on fredminnick.com. With the increase in awareness of sustainability and saving resources, do you ever see a day when a recharged barrel could be used for a second fill and still be considered bourbon or rye? Love everything you're doing and wish you continued success. Cheers. Uh, this is going to surprise a lot of people. First of all, Matthew, great, great question. I love this question, and I thank you for thinking so proactively about sustainability. And I do think it is within my lifetime to see that bourbon no longer goes solely into new charred oak. And it will not be the decision of bourbon distillers. You see, right now we are in the middle of a horrible, horrible tragedy all across the West Coast. Forests 
are burning everywhere. People are having to evacuate their homes. They're losing their property. They're losing everything that they've ever built. And it is just shredding the West Coast. The fire is killing us. It's just absolutely awful. And my heart goes out to anybody who is having to endure this. I'm so sorry. And it's got to feel odd to hear a bourbon guy even talk about this. But the fact is, barrels come from trees. And the foresters in the 1990s and early 2000s were talking about how to manage the the forests on the West Coast to prevent what we are dealing with today. Now, obviously, those things didn't happen and people disagreed, but we tend to not listen to foresters when it comes to managing our country's forests. Now, a lot of the wood that is used for bourbon barrels comes from private landowners. So it's not sitting on federal forests. It's not sitting on a company track. It's owned by somebody who owns a lot of land. And the Cooperages will send out foresters to go knock on those people's houses and say, hey, you've got a lot of timber over here. Could we harvest it and use it for whatever? And then they'll negotiate on price if they say yes. And and that's kind of how it goes. That's how that's how the acquisition of um, of wood goes for finding uh, barrels. Now, the U.S. Forestry Service is actually very concerned about uh, white oak regeneration and canopy gaps. And right now, they are studying it and they are trying to get people to manage their their forests better. And I want to read you a quote. This is a quote from uh, the USDA Forestry Service scientist Stacy Clark. Quote. White oak is declining in abundance across the eastern United States, which, by the way, that's where most of the bourbon barrels come from, basically from Missouri to east. And we are concerned that uh, wildlife species and industries around cooperages, distilleries, and flooring will be negatively affected without proactive forest management. We established this study to provide landowners with practical options for maintaining white oak trees in their forest, end quote. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, we saw a lot of kind of uh, foresters and state departments and the Forestry Service talking a lot about how to prevent uh, forest fires and preventing a decay in forests that would lead to fires. And that is a little bit about what the Forestry Service is doing now about white oak. They're looking at white oak and making sure that it's healthy. Uh, the Kentucky Distillers Association, the state of Kentucky, everybody who is associated with bourbon and the cooperage industry, they're doing every single thing that they can to preserve the health of the white oak forests. Now, that preservation, that effort is often outside of their control, and you can't dictate to someone whose family has owned a large acreage of land for a hundred years, you can't dictate to them how to manage their their woods properly. And so we are, the bourbon industry may actually fall victim to the neglect of people across the country with how they manage their wooded areas. So that is the thing. But here is my here is my pushback to anybody who wants to go directly to the uh, used barrels to save the environment. The bourbon barrel is already incredibly sustainable. It is sold off to Scotland or Mexico for tequila. It's used over and over and over and over again until it's cut in half and sold at Lowe's 
almost 50 years after it was initially used for a bourbon barrel. So it is an incredibly sustainable product because it gets reused all the time. And I would hate to see us enforce a law that would push us to go into a reactive mode just because we're trying to preserve the forest. The forest need to be managed and controlled by those who own it and the foresters around it. If the foresters then say that we need to reduce the amount of lumber that's coming out of these, then we'll react appropriately. But until that time comes, right now they're talking about managing the forest. That's what needs to be done, not changing the laws on barrels. But I do think it's a possibility that that day could come in my lifetime. Thank you for that excellent question, Matthew. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, everybody, if you want to be like Matthew and get your Above the Char question read on Bourbon Pursuit, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button and let me know what you want read on air. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody, to another Bourbon Community Roundtable. It's part of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, and this is the 61st. So it only took us 61 to finally get in. We're getting our groove finally, but this is going to be a great one. We've got a lot of great topics kind of lined up tonight. You know, Ryan, we were hanging out with, you know, with each other earlier today, kind of reviewing some of the new whiskey releases for this year. But I think the real thing that we have to talk about is Fred, who this past week spent 12 hours at Rabbit Hole doing an all-nighter watching MASH uh, kind of kind of change. It's like, was it like watching grass grow? Like, what, tell me about it. You know, it, 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 you, we take for granted you go into a distillery and you see like the little bubbles. And I've always 
my entire career, I love being behind the scenes with like the production people, you know, and I usually it's in a writing format. And so this was an opportunity for me to kind of show uh, what fermentation is like from the very beginning. So um, <laughs> the, when it's right there and then the bubbles start, you know, so it's like eight, 14 hours in the yeast is really active. And it was just a fun demonstration to show what uh what happens during fermentation so were also, you a corn grain or a wheat grain or this was this rabbit? was uh rabbit holes uh five grain and it was, it was chocolate malt there was chocolate malt in there and so it looked like malto meal and when i stuck my hand in there it was unlike any mash i'd ever uh touched before and that there was just there was a lot of particles and so all of these grains that they have in this uh, you know for this mash bill it's really, really thick. And so when they go to do the test, you know, it's like, you know, there's that much uh, in the beaker, there's that much solid and the rest is liquid. So I imagine that that particular fermentation doesn't yield a lot of liquid because there's so much mass to it. But it's just, it's, it was just fun to do. And 10 people stayed through the whole night uh, with me. And um, I was up the whole time and it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I, I remember... Yeah, I was about to say, you need to sleep because I remember you showed a picture of a cot. Yeah, I my whole intention was to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. Um, just too you know, exciting. Yeah, it yeah. was just, you know, watching the bubbles just, you know, it was just too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I, I saw you getting ready to do that, I was like, just get on the live stream at some point and just tell ghost stories because you're going to have to figure out some way to, uh, to kind of keep this thing actionable. And I took your advice and I did that and people took it hook, line and sinker. People like, Oh my gosh, really? There's, there's a ghost there. And then people who worked there was like, is that true? It's like goosebumps over there. Yeah, it was, Rabbit holes. It, it was something. It was like that or picture like you just kind of like you take a take a camera with you and like a flashlight and I like, hold it up underneath your face and just like run around certain corners be like I think I see somebody there's somebody's in the building right now. <laughs> well, I mean that's what all those paranormal shows are. Yeah. Oh my God, what's that? You know. So loving the way to do it. But let's go <laughs> ahead and we'll kind of kick off the show tonight. Of course, we've got our regular roundtable guest with us. So I'll go ahead and kind of leave it over to here to Brian first to kind of uh, kick it off for us here. Hey, thanks for having me on 61. Brian from Sippin' Corn. Yeah, I'll go next. Uh, Blake from Bourboner and Sealbox.com. So happy to be back and probably the clearest you've ever heard me. Hey, y'all. Happy Monday. Nick from Breaking Bourbon, BreakingBourbon.com. Uh, glad to be here. Looking forward to this one. Good deal. And we're uh, we're taking we're taking some cues from a listener survey. So we're gonna we're gonna shorten up the intros in the very beginning. We're gonna kind of let people hear more about these guys towards the end but let's go ahead and let's kick off with our first topic of the night and this is brokers joining the kda now this is a a press release that came out this past week and that is that the kentucky distillers association has announced that white dog trading and storage who's based in woodford county uh and i've talked to people from white dog before they're great people uh ryan and i we've talked before about actually sourcing barrels before they are the newest member of the KDA. Now, this is also an interesting kind of topic because they are not a distiller yet, but they are aging somewhere between, well, to be actually to be a KDA proof member, it's between 10,000 and 50,000 barrels a year. And right now they have a campus that includes three different 55,000 square foot state-of-the-art warehouses 
they will be building or bringing on a distillery at some point, and they're also going to have things to be able to have tourist activities or have event spaces, corporate off spaces and stuff like that. Now, I think this is very interesting. I actually talked to one of the co-founders, Mark Harris, earlier on the phone today to kind of learn more about it because I, I didn't want to come on here and kind of spew some false information. But I thought this was a very interesting way to kind of look at this as saying like, this is the first broker that's now a part of the KDA and potentially being a part of the bourbon trail. So kind of give some thoughts on, on like, what does this particularly, what could this open up to in regards of, you know, either more coming in or what does this mean for other brands? Like kind of tell me some thoughts. What do you all feel here? Remind me, what does the D in KDA stand for? The Kentucky Distillers <laughs> Association. Thank you Which, for bringing that you know, part up. Being facetious uh, aside, uh, it is kind of strange, but y- you know, it's kind of like I-, I would get why they would want to be members, and I would get why KDA would want them in there. You know, the, the the more it's you know rising tides raises all ships kind of a deal, and if they have somebody like them in there that's a broker that's active that could ultimately be an interesting stop for tourists. Um, yeah, I get that, but but I'm kind of with you, Kenny. It's it is a little funny that now we're bringing brokers in, and um, it's kind of like who does that open it up to next? Because you know a lot of these other brands that you know maybe they just have a, a warehouse in in Kentucky, or what if what if they're a bigger brand but they store their barrels at multiple warehouses and have a small tasting room? I guess what's the ultimate goal of the KDA, and is if it's just to spread well. bourbon as far as possible. I get that why you need more members, but I don't know. It, it's it's let's interesting. Be, let's, to say the least. let's be very clear. Th- this company does have a DSP, so they have a permit to distill. They're not actively distilling. Um, there have been rectifiers tried to become KDA members, and the KDA has turned them out, turned them down. That has been very recent that that's happened. And you know, I the KDA doesn't exactly open up their uh, archives to me to like analyze some of their past members from like 1888 and so forth. But uh, one, the, the the earliest I've been able to track their membership in terms of like an official document was the 1940s. And there were a couple in there that would be kind of like along the lines of like the Van Winkles, um, it, you know, so they didn't, they would basically rent still time, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much their their bylaws have changed over the years, but I know that there have been rectifiers trying to get into the KDA, and they've been blocked. and And I I don't know if they took this on as like, oh, hey, we're going to start taking on brokers. I don't think that's the case. I mean, I talked to the KDA about this too, and they were under the impression that you know distillation was going to be coming down uh, very soon, and they had a whole plan and everything. So. I would surmise that if they don't hold up to their DSP, you know, they'll probably won't, won't remain members. That's just that's just my thought. Why why let them in the first place if um, you weren't planning on opening it up? Um, well, but because they're, they're they're, the they have a DSP, you know, so they have a DSP and a plan to distill. Like if if Ryan and Kenny, you know, for um, the Pursuit series wanted to like get a DSP in Kentucky and have plans to distill, they could they would be within their rights to go and apply and become a member. You know, I mean, that was basically, it's basically it. And, you know, basically, and also it's like, 
it's political capital to be a member of the KDA. And the only, the only like substantial distillery that's not a member of the KDA is Buffalo trace. And they don't, you know, they don't need that. You know, they got their own thing going, but you know, the KDA is, is political capital. One phone call, they can get in the room with a governor or uh, the Senate majority leader or have a meeting with the vice president, you know? So there's, there's incredible power with that organization. So anybody who is in the business would definitely want to be a part of it if they had that opportunity. And so I, I think Mark and, you know, they're, they're, they're making a strategic move and, but they are legitimately a broker. They're not distilling right now. They may have a DSP, you know, maybe the KDA should have waited a little bit. I mean that I, I could see that discussion, but you know, I think this is, if this is all about whatever, whatever they said to them in their application. I also do want to clarify we'll that to, to get a DSP, you don't actually have to be a distillery. You can apply for some things and you can make it look like a distillery. You could just look like you're a bottling facility. You could look like you're a warehouse. That doesn't mean you actually have to distill. So getting a DSP in that particular license also ultimately just means you have to have some sort of distilled spirits at some location doing something. So I think there's there's a little bit of that that kind of clarity to bring about it too. The the thing about this is, but you talked to them earlier, and they are they are planning to distill. Yes, I did. I, I did talk to Mark a little bit earlier just to kind of get some clarity. They do have a Vendome uh, copper pot still right now. However, they're not going to put that into production. They are planning to get a large twenty four inch Vendome column still, and then use the copper pot still as a doubler. Now, granted, there's probably a lot more things to figure out in the middle there to make this an operational thing. But those were some of the plans that they they did have. But they do say that they have three different fifty five thousand square foot facilities, and I'll I can give you some details a bit later if it, if it, if you all want to get into it. But the way that it sounded is that basically they have explosion proof warehouses that really nobody else has. So it's it's interesting to kind of see what they're doing. But that's I don't really want that to take away from the conversation. I kind of want to bring it back to the fact that you know we're we're seeing a new type of a business getting into the KDA and it's not necessarily the traditional route that we typically would think of. Yeah. Let me take it a step further though. There's, there's partner members for the KDA too. So you've got a CPA firm, you've got two law firms, you've got a construction company that builds warehouses. You've got all these people who are partner members, which will never have a DSP ever in their life and never distill. So I, Look at White Dog, who's totally legit on the brokering and storage side. You know, major player. They're doing what the KDA members do. What do you guys think about going ten steps further here and letting a law firm in as a partner? It's it's interesting. Can you trust a lawyer though? That's the (laughs) (laughs) only. I've got my nomination. Yeah, I've got my nomination for the first one to be. I like uh, the CPAs. Do the CPAs. Yeah, Yeah, we. You know, we're all signing up for tomorrow, right? I think I looked at that list too, Brian. I think UPS is even on there as well, which, yeah, you know, and, and to some regard, great. If UPS can help grease the skids of, of getting the movement of bourbon out to people in the world, you know, that's great. I think it's an alliance of people that are promoting Kentucky's bourbon, helping one another do that. Um, if you're throwing money at an association that is going to help promote that, I, to some extent, it's kind of a you know, whose money wouldn't you take type of a thing? You know, I don't really see where it hurts anybody to have them join. 
you know, I guess I would ask you guys that. Does that, do you feel that that degrades the distillers that are there? Uh, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's an interesting side of the business that a lot of, you know, the general public doesn't understand and that I think people would think it's interesting. I would find it interesting. And the only negative I could see is maybe the brands that are working through White Dog or whoever, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, you're sourcing your product, you know, you're this, that, you're, you know, your story is all this and that, that, that could be the only downside is like, okay, there's a lot of brands that aren't making their own or, you know, telling stories. And I, I could see maybe that being a negative side to it. But uh, I do think people will find it fascinating, you know, to see the behind the scenes, like of all the, the source whiskey market and brand building that goes on in this industry now. So, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we're, we're sitting here talking about a trade organization, you know, on a, on a consumer facing podcast and people will be as interested about this as they would uh, a limited edition release, you know, because that's where that's where this is. And the KDA, you know, for for a lack of better comparison, is the equivalent of the National Football League overseeing, you know, the NFL. The KDA, for all intents and purposes, is overseeing bourbon. And, you know, they certainly have their hands in other things, but that's the primor- primary objective, and it's specifically Kentucky bourbon. And, you know, what's interesting, it's like that's kind of the it's kind of like the um, you know, the rise of the KDA really begins when they implemented a sales tax in 2009 and they uh, went on the Capitol steps and they they protested all pouring bourbon onto onto the steps. And that was the moment they all got together and they started working together. And I think it's one of the greatest stories of the contemporary rise of of American whiskey is to see how well for the most part, these distillers work together and then they end up suing each other. It's fascinating to me, like how, like when it comes to legislative efforts, they work as like one ship moving forward. But when it comes to their own little piece of the pie in the market, they'll fight like hell, you know, for that shelf space. So there's gotta be a reason that this company is being allowed in. They have to be providing something uh, to strengthen that political capital that the KDA has right now. Because I will tell you, there are few organizations as powerful in the Kentucky legislature as the KDA. You know, coal industry's down, horse industry's down. Kentucky is bourbon, 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 bourbon. And, you know, holding the keys to most of those distillers is the KDA. Yeah, and I think you make a great point because you have to look at this as the only reason you join an organization is to figure out what do you get out of it and what do I get out of it? And now for the KDA, it's of course we want you in because your money helps us be able to grow and operate the business of what it is. For a lot of distilleries, they like to join the KDA because they have a huge marketing organization behind it. They've got the people that run and operate the Kentucky Bourbon Trail that tries and help boost tourism to get people out to your facility. This is a a pretty a, a brand new way to look at it because again, it's it's one of these things that yeah, it's it's three big warehouses in an event space. That's a pretty far stretch to say, oh, we expect to get, you know, 40,000 visitors next year. Like that seems all right, now you 40,000. What's what's what do they mostly get now? They're up up to like 500,000 million dollar million visits a year, whatever it is. Like that's a stretch to be able to say I'm going to go visit some warehouses somewhere. 
so it's kind of hard to kind of see, well, what are we getting out of the KDA other than that you had mentioned, Fred, if there is something that we don't know about that could be a potential government hurdle that the KDA can help them achieve and, and kind of get past. Eric Gregory is a good friend to have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other uh, any kind of thoughts and topics on this before we move to the next? No. Okay. All right. We'll get into a little bit of a, a spicy one here. And and that's looking at kind of what's happened as of this past week. The workers in the union at Heaven Hill has gone on strike. So there has been uh, an interruption in the bottling operation and some other things. We've also seen that Heaven Hill is now pulled out of the Kentucky Bourbon Affair, or Kentucky, sorry, Kentucky Bourbon Festival because of this as well. But this isn't something that's brand new. We see this happen quite often. Just a few years ago, we saw this happen at Four Roses. And I, Ryan, I remember we were going to a barrel selection at Four Roses, and typically they have eight, nine, ten barrels out for us. And they were like, oh, sorry, we only have six today because Mandy was like, it's up to me to roll up the barrels and I can't go get them. Yeah, and they're on the bottom floor because I'm rolling them out, the easiest ones to get out. So. Yeah. <laughs> So I kind of want to look at this and and think of uh, of a way to kind of frame this is is how important unions are to distilleries and, and really what does the impact on something like this bring to to the distillery when this when this does happen and I know Fred you had mentioned that you you had kind of done some research on this and and kind of what it's looked like over the past years as well yeah I mean strikes happen all the time uh, in American whiskey, even before Four Roses, uh, Jim Beam, when their workers went on strike. And usually what happens is they try to recruit the other distilleries to go on strike. So, you know, we talk about like the KDA being kind of like a, like a a little glue in the industry. You know, the, the, most of these are all in in very similar or the same unions. Uh, Maker's Mark is the only large distillery that's not uh, uh, unionized. The smaller ones you know, like Michter's and uh, like Rabbit Hole, they're not they're not union. But you know, back in the 30s and 40s, I mean these uh, these strikes were really bloody in Peoria and picking uh, Illinois. You know, they had uh, they had to bring in the National Guard. People went to the hospital. It was really really bad in in uh, Stitzel Weller. You know, they basically worked within the distribution chain and got d- distributors to s- keep from from buying product and there are a lot of people who believe that the strikes at Stitzel Weller are what put Pappy Van Winkle in the grave because he died, you know, not too long after uh you know some of those strikes and there would be full page ads about, you know, str- the strike happening and keeping getting people to not to not buy their product and what have you and there is no doubt that the skill of a bourbon whiskey worker is is far greater than uh, the skill of a regular manual labor. Uh, you bring someone in to roll barrels, and you're probably going to lose a thumb a week. I mean, it requires incredible amounts of skill to to roll a barrel, and it's it, these things come up all the time. They come up all the time, and you know you, you know labor labor peace is very important for for bourbon it's very very important it's very important for every industry um and you know i know that the um it's it's never fun to see it happen but i always like to point out that it's a it's a very common 
a very common thing. And these, these usually work out very peacefully. Everyone usually, usually ends up very happy, uh, at the end Four roses, Jim beam, you know, those are two, uh, important stuff, you know, recent case studies of, um, of them ending peacefully. So historically, you know, they happen and they try to recruit other distilleries. I was having this conversation with my dad yesterday because as you all know, I'm from Bardstown. So I have a lot of people, uh, <laughs> that have been impacted, but, uh, no, it's interesting because like, like you take Ford or GM or for example, they have, you know, big unions, great unions, but they also, they've subcontract a lot of parts and manufacturing to out of the country and other parts for, to get cheaper labor. And now they're only assembling the, the trucks is what the unions do. But with bourbon, you know, it's a unique product to where it's like, you got to make it here. You know, you got to bottle it here. You got to warehouse it here. And so like the, the workers almost have like, you know, kind of a leverage in this, you know, more so than any other union because it is so region focused, you know, and it has to be here. And so, uh, I think it'll all work out, but, uh, it, it is an interesting from a business side, you know, because you, you can't just pick up and say, well, we're just going to outsource it to China or Mexico or other countries or whatever, right. like other industries can. And, you know, Ryan too, like, you know, I, I find that the way that the, the workers have communicated publicly to be very civil and to be like, we really, really don't want to be doing this. And no, they fun. don't at all. Yeah. You know? And so I, I just think this is a, at, at the end of the day, if, you are in a union and you all vote to go forward. You know, there's, it is never, it is never a fun. I, I was in a union once and, and, you know, it's not, it's never, it's never something that, you know, you look forward to. So I know that everybody would much rather be in there making whiskey. And I, and I hope that that time happens very soon because yeah, cause you're, you're not seeing it in the paid. chat. People's barrel picks are canceled. You know, they're pulling out of the bourbon festival. I mean, Heaven Hill means a lot to a lot of people. It does. And I, I think it'll all work out, but it's, yeah, I mean, these people aren't getting paid, you know, they're, they're taking a leave of absence and not getting paid to do this. So, you know, they're standing for something, you know, so it's important to them and to the, the owners as well. Um, but yeah, it's a, a lot of people are impacted, you know, and by, by this whole thing, it's, so it's gotta be a big deal, you know? I, I was shocked by the percentage of people that voted for the strike. I mean, usually you don't get that. I mean, it was like, I, I forget what the numbers were, but it's something like 90 something percent voted in favor of the strike, which is, which is one rare to see. But the other point I wanted to make uh, you know, with Fred, I, I hear you that a lot of the workers are being civil about it, but the damn ones that they put onto the news clips are all shitting on heaven Hill. And that's, that's never, productive. I mean, they, they say they're coming out of a bad five-year contract and they're saying it's not a good place to work. And that's, I mean, that's just the wrong way from, from my viewpoint to, to approach this. I, I agree with everybody. It's going to end up working out fine. I mean, it's a, it's a good place to work. Um, from everything I've heard, they they treat the people well. You just got to get through the negotiations. I didn't read, you know, I didn't read a ton of detail on this, but what I did gather was there, it looks like the contract negotiations are looking to potentially shift people to weekend work and they would have, say, two days off during the week, for example, um, seemed to be a big thing issue that was raised in a number of articles that covered this. 
you know, just from the standpoint of certainly not knowing all behind it, not not reading the contract and so forth, you know, you, you do have to look at it to some extent and say, hey, the bourbon is having its heyday here. You know, to some extent, that should filter down, that should find its way down to the employees in some way, shape or form. So not knowing what that contract looks like, like I would like to think that whatever it is, is a step up from whatever the contract was before. You know, you'd like to think that there's some sharing in this success that right now the bourbon industry is enjoying maybe to its greatest extent ever. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. Like they see the success of bourbon and you automatically assume that, oh, you're making all this money as an employee, but you don't always know on the other hand, uh, you know, they're investing a lot in infrastructure. So it, it's a negotiation. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think it's, you know, just bourbon who's going through this. We've seen it in all kinds of other companies. So, you know, at the end of the day, you just hope they work it out. You hope the employees get a reasonable, fair compensation um, that they, they get to take credit and uh, to kind of, uh, you know, at least share in some of the the success that bourbon's having right now. You know, I, th- I think that's fair, but ultimately, you know, I'm sure they want to be working. You know, nobody wants to just sit out without a paycheck to, to try to negotiate. So um, hopefully it's resolved quickly. Yeah. yeah it's, it's tough for both parties. Cause you got, you know, as a worker, you're like, well, you're seeing all this, you know, success and whatever, and you want to trickle down or whatever. And then as an owner, you're like, gosh, we can't even tap into like a tiny bit of the demand right now. And we're trying to like push and trying to take advantage of it now. Cause you never know when it's could drop down or, you know, they've been through two or three gluts at heaven Hill. I was reading Steve Coombs article in the Kentucky bourbon festival program, you know, and Mike Shapiro has been through two gluts there, you know, where bourbons just went to the shitter, you know, and they sat on stuff and it's, uh, so, you know, it's, there's always both sides of the story, you know, and hopefully they can make it a win-win situation, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Well, I, I know that it just, you know, the process can't happen without happy workers and I just hope it gets resolved. I just hope it gets resolved peacefully you know, Max is not one to back down from a negotiation. So, I I, I hope that this is uh, this is a short uh, a short strike for for everybody, and it, it won't be the last. And the, I mean, the the long term impact could be great because there's already issues, you know, from supply chain, you know, with delays on bottlings and you know being able to release stuff with glass and labels and everything. And then now you throw this on top of it, and it's like it's just. I know everybody was stressed just from that side. And now you throw this where they're not even putting stuff out for, you know, gosh, you know, that hopefully it doesn't last too long. Cause then you're like, how do you catch up from that? You know? And, and, you know, look, this happens in France. It happens, it happens everywhere. And so it's just going to be whatever happens here and however long it happens, heaven Hill will catch up, you know, historically strikes are only successful, you know, for as long as they, the workers can hold out, like, and, and that's, that's the big one there is like the inner workings of the strike, you know, the union itself, like how together are they and coming in at 96 percentile on a vote. Holy crap. You know, that is, that is people wanting change. And, um, again, I just hope it, everything gets worked out peacefully. I mean, that's about the best I can say. And, and just to add that this is, a it's another historic moment in in bourbon that um will go in the history books for sure 
It's a good way to put it. And uh, I think we've all kind of put a good commentary on that. But I want to kind of switch gears a little bit, maybe something a little more lighthearted. And when we think about what bourbon has become in the past few years, or actually maybe bourbon in, I don't know, all of its history, is that everything boils down to marketing. And I kind of want to talk about who do we think is doing the best marketing today? Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Who do we think is doing the best marketing today? And I kind of want to throw uh, throw a few names out there, and we'll kind of talk about them a little bit. But I do want to I do want to put one person on the map here. I think is probably doing some of the best marketing ever, and that's the Sealbox email thread. Because I swear, every other day there is there I get emails in my inbox that says this is going on sale. It's going to go fast. I'm sorry if I have to you know if it sells out too fast and you get you don't get anything and. It's every other day. It's every 48 hours I have to see those emails. So I think uh, first those are just, to, just to you. Those don't go off to the mask <laughs> list. It's just Kenny at, yeah. So tip of the hat to Blake on making sure we, we keep the hype train alive over there. But Blake, I'll, I'll kind of put it to you first. I mean, you actually see this a lot from different, you know, craft distillers that are trying to make a name for themselves and you kind of get a, an early inside view and hook into what they're doing. Do you see anybody that's doing anything like super interesting or different today than say traditional or heritage distilleries on, on how they're doing. Um, yeah. So the reason for those emails are because I don't want the hate afterwards of like, well, this is ridiculous. I didn't get a bottle. I can at least say like, I, I warned you 24 hours in advance, how this was going to go and to be ready. So that's, you know, kind of curbing my own inbox if, if I can. Um, but there, there's a few I think are, doing incredible jobs you know obviously we get a ton of inquiries for pursuit spirits um one because y'all are 
you're online. I think that's the biggest part that um, some of the big brands aren't doing as well. So um, you forgot yeah. also that Ryan is like super good looking. And Th- that, that, that helps, makes up for you know, a that, big part of it. my receding hairline. That shirtless <laughs> calendar he did definitely brought in some customers. Uh, yes, yeah. Mr. Um, June. But no, so, so some others, I think Blue Run is is doing a great job. You know, um, I think the biggest compliment they got, uh, I saw somebody talking about like, oh, why do I see everybody talking about this? I don't know if it's even that good. I'm like, that that's kind of what you want like you you know you want people talking about it you want people who are upset that they can't get it you don't want everyone upset about it but it's it's a fine line you know i think uh pappy van winkle his famous quote was you know i want to make one less bottle than i have customers to buy um so you always want a little bit of that hanging around so i think the big thing is social media that a lot of people don't take advantage of so blue run smoke wagon bardstown bourbon company at least from my perspective on Sealbox, are just crushing the instagram game right now instagram facebook groups um you know th- they're constantly on lives tastings um it, you know getting bottles to influencers who take pictures and then do their own reviews and tastings and that's what i see working you know, you've seen Bardstown Bourbon Company put a very concerted effort to their, um, what do they call the spirits uh, taster that they're doing? It's like they win $20,000. Yeah, um, they're they're basically yeah, their they're bourbon aficionado yeah. of the year. World's, yeah. world's best taster. That's they got the mobile bourbon bar. Yeah. They take I around. mean, I, I use them as an example of, um, you, you know, I was buying them. Uh, I, I was their first retailer outside of Kentucky and I would buy, you know, 20 cases of discovering 20 cases of fusion at a time. And I'd sell through it maybe 45, maybe 60 days. Now, if I have 20 cases of discovery, like it's gone, like people have caught on it, It's, you know, you got to have a mix. You got to have a great product, but I think a lot of brands are just missing that connection with the customer to be like personable, relatable, and, in their Instagram feed. So that's, that's some of my examples. So you think Instagram is by far the biggest driver so far? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think blue run has just crushed it on Instagram that they reply to every comment. They reply to every DM. You can talk with, um, you know, the CEO, he writes hand written letters to customers that purchase bottles. Um, I think all that stuff just goes a long way. You know, I've, I've never gotten, anything from Buffalo trace. I've never gotten anything from my local retailer, but to have a brand that seems like, you know, they're a bigger brand and then they have that personal touch on top of it. I think that's huge for consumers these days who are looking for something different. Nick, what do you think, man? Yeah, I was going to, you know, I was going to add to that because you say, yes, the question who is the best marketing I think of, I guess, what do I like that somebody's doing versus what's i guess effective for them that i may not particularly like um and so you know who comes to mind you know is is buffalo trace you know i i don't i don't like that there's a scarcity with the products or at least a perceived scarcity with the products um but i think it's very 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 effective for them you know i know locally retailers don't even put a lot of their products on the shelves instead they whisper in your ear that they have it and so that makes the scarcity feel even more it's more present it's more in your face and and what blake's talking about you know to some extent you do have some of these new brands who are connecting with their audience they're connecting with bourbon enthusiasts in in particular and they're 
they have somewhat of that scarcity and to some extent that is something you need i think there's a there's a feeling when something is on every shelf everywhere and you can always find it that it may not be that good and especially if you're a new brand and you don't have a lot of production and you're trying to reach an audience and engage an audience i think sometimes you want to touch some of that scarcity you want to follow a little bit of that playbook from buffalo trace but at the same time i think you also want to win over the enthusiasts who a lot of times are some of the most vocal people maybe that only makes up five percent of the market maybe initially it's a bigger portion of your market but i think speaking to those enthusiasts like some of these brands do i know the guys from penelope talk to everybody we talk with them all the time they're talking getting information back from everybody they work with you know they want to learn as much as they want to teach and and i think a lot of brands are like that you know joel beatrice barrel bourbon very much you know very much like that from the beginning he listened to what people said and and learned from it and, and he's not afraid to share information so i think those brands that do connect are the ones that are going to have the long-term success even when bourbon maybe burst in its bubble for example so i think it's going to go a long way to connect with those people now i do want to hit on one thing you said there about about sazerac and i think that one thing that might be a a, a great misconception is that you will see that Buffalo Trace spends almost no money on marketing. Like the only thing that they've done is now they sponsor Joe Rogan podcast. But the other thing that they do is it's very, it's so like pinpointed. It's they they do a very good job of doing it on a, such a low budget, and they do their their weekly lives. Uh, See good on our chat said that they really enjoy the their weekly lives. And if you look what they've been doing, they I think that was actually part of the pandemic is when they started doing that because I think a lot of distilleries started realizing that they don't need whiskey media as much as maybe they need to. Like they can do some of this stuff on their own. They can do these Facebook lives. They can do all this sort of stuff. And they were really the first ones to kind of jump on it. And when you see a weekly live come on from Buffalo trace and, you know, and shout out to Tim Jones, he does an awesome job. He's really the man behind the scenes there that set all that up. And you see Joshua Steely, you see Harlan Wheatley, you see Freddie Johnson on those weekly lives. I mean, they've got, God, up to upwards of 2000 people watching it at one point, like talk about some, some brand connection there with very little budget or anything kind of going into it. So, you know, hats off to them for being able to do that. Yeah. I think that's a great way to connect with people because Harlan, I mean, man, the guy's got so much experience. It's, it's incredible to hear him talk about it and, you know, just how much stuff has changed. And I mean, I find myself tuning in because you do learn something and it, it, those are always really fun to watch. I wish more distillers would do that kind of stuff with the master distiller. I think that's where wilderness trail comes in. I mean, Harlan's kind of dry for me, but you, that's why I like wilderness trail. I mean, you've got excitable and exciting guys and you've got the marketing aspect of doing the, um, who doesn't love a little bit of Pat heist, right? Exactly. I mean, you can't get enough of Pat heist. But you go there and they've got the the barbecue stuff and they've got bands and, you know, there's other distilleries that are trying that angle on on marketing, too. And I guess you got to get something to get you out to the distillery. But I think they've done a really good job of getting people out there. They've got a good social media presence. And, you know, I, I totally echo what Blake was saying about that. It's important to have that. And they've got that both through their their primary site and through their brand ambassadors. I think they've done a really good job at that. Man, I don't know how this, you know, everyone has win except for Ryan and not mention Brown Foreman. I mean, Brown Foreman 
for God's sake, Jack Daniels, you know, their, their marketing, you know, goes back to the fifties planting bottles of uh, Jack and Frank Sinatra's, uh, you know, dressing room, you know, to like being on the cover of uh, Appetite for Destruction for Guns N' Roses. And then Woodford Reserve owns the Derby. You I was know? about to I mean, say, so, I was like, you see, you see them at the Derby everywhere. I mean, they own it. So like they have a traditional like event spend that pays off, you know, so that's like one that's really, really powerful. Uh, you know, from, uh, you know, everyone's kind of like talking about like the social media thing and everything. And, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I, I think the sending to influencers honestly is lazy. I mean, I know it's effective, but I, I think it's lazy and what, what Buffalo trace is doing, doing their own live streams, what smoke wagons doing with their own stuff, they're connecting and creating their own influence, just sending out uh, a bottle to someone to put next to their you know, beautiful self. I mean, great. You got a bottle shot. You know, d does anyone really, you know, talk about the whiskey or, or are you explaining what the whiskey is? You know, to me, you know, that stuff, you know, doesn't connect very well in, in the grand scheme of things. But I, I will say that, you know, one of my, one of my favorite brands of, of all time when it comes to like, uh, you know, interpersonal marketing is um is Michter's. Uh Michter's is, you know, they have a they have an old school like shake your hand, ask about your family approach. And, you know, that gets them on the sets of major TV shows like billions. Like they're not paying for that. That's through like friendly connections. So you have you have like a lot of different techniques, but at the end of the day, I think the most effective way to to get your bourbon in front of someone is through conversation, either through social media or interpersonal uh, activity. And, you know, always through, through music. I think music is a great conduit to, to getting to people. And let's not forget people that sponsor podcasts by far the best money ever spent. <laughs> That's the <laughs> quickest way to keep get it coming. To keep it coming. The bourbon <laughs> audience. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I think that was good. I, honestly, I think we should probably come back to this for for a longer conversation because there's there's so many brands out there that are doing things differently, and we can. Uh, there's people that are talking about you know talk about Bo from Wild Turkey and how what he's doing on the social media side. You have people that really like Bullet that are just people that are loyal to the company and, and to the brand. And there's just there's I mean we think of things like like Uncle Nearest like when I think of Uncle Nearest there's a lot of stuff that is just really relying upon their awards I mean the only thing I see on their their feeds is like oh we yeah, just got another one. award for something else like yeah. it's it's just one of those things I mean they, Uncle are, Nearest created a culture you know they I mean I I don't even think of them as a whiskey I think of them as a culture they really changed the game in so many ways or how about a brand that does zero marketing and has all the demand in the world not Sazerac but will it? Will it? Yeah. Ah, very true. true. But, Fair point, yeah. Ryan. But it's, I think uh, he was smart to get it in certain people's hands. Oh, yeah. And now you go that, and they got this beautiful restaurant, great food. It's probably one of the best, better restaurants mm -hmm. in the state. Uh, yeah, you know, I think Willett's just, their marketing has always been their whiskey, you know? Yeah. And, and Evan was so, like, passionate about saving so many barrels, you know, and keep, keeping those barrels alive and, you know, getting them out into uh, circulation their whiskey was their marketing. And at the end of the day, that is the most powerful marketing tool you can possibly have. 
you know, there's a lot of great people getting into whiskey right now. And they're all trying to get the right barrels and connect with the right people. But there's only so much you can do if your whiskey's not good. <laughs> but And that's what's interesting about, I mean, just going through the examples we went through here. And, and honestly, guys, you guys could probably cover one distillery per show uh, and just, just their marketing. Um, but you go from the put your head down, make great whiskey, and don't put any actual money into marketing to let's own the Kentucky Derby. I mean, how freaking different can you be in terms of your marketing strategy for how you're going to do something? And yet in this stratosphere of bourbon, all these things find a way to succeed. And that's what's interesting mm -hmm. about it too, is a lot of it's not even specifically marketing. It's just education. It's just, let's just talk to people or let's just get involved in that in and of itself makes people aware of a brand and, and they try it and they like it and they feel connected to the company. And that works. And, and that's not something that works in, you know, you buy a cell phone, you don't really care if you feel that connected to the company per se. You just want the cell phone that's the fastest and has the best screen or whatever the case might be. That's what's interesting about bourbon. And I've heard it. I've, I, I know it's been comments in the chat in the past. Uh, I remember somebody saying once, you know, that there's a lot of talk about marketing sometimes. That's true. And I think a lot of that is because marketing is what it engages people in the first place and being interested in a brand, because if you don't have interest to start, you're probably not going to try it. And so that's why the marketing is very important, because there's so many brands competing for the attention that you've got to get somebody's attention some way, shape or form, hmm. or you'll never succeed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're coming back to this topic next roundtable. I'm already putting it up. It's going to be the first topic that we can come back to because I think there's a lot more to unpack here. Marketing roundtable. Let's, well, and let's talk about what marketing backfires. I mean, that, that's, that would be I mean, there's a lot of marketing that I don't like. So make a, make a note of that, Kenny. Note taken. Just wrote right. it down just for you. Sweet. That's what we're doing four awesome. weeks from now. So I want to say, guys, thank you so much for coming on tonight. And before we kind of sign off, of course, Kenny, Ryan, and Fred here from Bourbon Pursuit. Make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts and all your socials. But I'll hand it over to Brian first to kind of uh, round this out for us. All right. Thanks again for having me. It's always fun. Uh, Brian with Sippin' Corn. You can find me on all the socials at Sippin' Corn or online at Bourbon Justice. It's been a fun one. And I, I want to get, uh, I, I do look forward to talking about marketing again. It's a good one. For sure. And Blake. Yeah, I'm uh, Blake from Bourboner and Sealbox.com. Always fun, um, kind of with Brian. I'm excited to get back to the marketing topic. You know, it seems like uh, I, I read recently in a book, it's like the opposite of right is sometimes also right. And it, it, that really is true in the bourbon world. Like sometimes you just have a great product and uh, you let it sit there. And sometimes you just, you know, go full blast and that works out as well. But Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, looking forward to number 62 uh, coming up. And Kenny was kind enough to plan out my next uh, six months of roundtables. So thank you for my calendar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to make sure, make sure everybody's cleared their calendars. Uh, I don't need any kind of like random surprises of like, wait, it's when? It's what? I can't make it. No, I canceled my anniversary trip just because, hey, Kenny put it on my calendar. Sorry, we're not going. <laughs> Aruba can wait. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Nick. Hey, Nick with Breaking Bourbon, uh, or as uh, someone referred to me in the chat, Smooth Velvet. So I think that's going to be my, uh, my my new name here. But uh, anyways, Breaking Bourbon, BreakingBourbon.com. Uh, check us out on all the socials at breaking bourbon watch for reviews every day of the week watch for updates coming soon release calendar a lot of uh 
you know, a lot of fall releases going to be hitting here, September, October, November, December. These are the big months for uh, new stuff coming to market. So we try to update that a lot. Uh, as always, great chatting with you guys. Thanks for having me on. And uh, everybody in the chat, appreciate the comments. Nick for does sure. sound good. I, I, I'm with the smooth velvet. 1-800-SMOOTH-VELVET. So I just, just reserving that now. So... <laughs> <laughs> might be longer than seven digits. You have to figure out how to shorten that one up a Just little bit. Just get the website. <laughs> Anything works with the internet. We uh, the t-shirt coming. T-shirt coming. I like the t-shirt. Maybe the sticker. Sticker for the next next barrel pick for sure. There you go. But cheers, guys. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we'll see you all here in a few weeks with the next roundtable. With that, see you all next week. <laughs>